1: This episode is brought to you by Cheese State
2: University. Cheese State University was created for dedicated cheese professionals seeking to deepen their knowledge, sharpen their skills, and build connections. Join them in the Ivy League of Cheese Education at cheesestateuniversity.com.
1: Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Schulkin, the foundation's executive director. Our show takes you inside the foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome wine expert, John Bonet. In this episode, we'll talk to John about the new French wine, which is also the title of his new book. And we'll hear John's Julia moment Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Julia's advocacy for wine drinking is legendary as are the untrue rumors that she was drunk on TV. If that's your impression, you're confusing Dan Aykroyd's Saturday Night Live parody with real life. Julia couldn't slice and dice with speed and accuracy while on camera and be drinking real wine. What Julia learned in France was an appreciation of wine, when and how to drink it, and an awareness that good wine comes from good agronomy. What tends to get lost in much of the pretense surrounding wine collecting is that making good wine is rooted in good farming. It starts with growing good grapes. Now, like with French food, Julia's goal was to demystify Americans' understanding of French wine. In the 1960s, when she first started advocating for its merits, French wine was viewed as something only for sophisticates but her goal was to democratize French wine drinking. Julia said, I say fie to those onophilic spoil sports who insist that wine goes with neither eggs nor salads. Wine is essential with anything, particularly omelets for lunch. Someone who shares Julia's mission to keep expanding our preconceptions about French wine and actually probably knows what an onophilic spoil sport is is John Bonet. John is currently the managing editor of Resi and previously was the wine editor and chief wine critic for the San Francisco Chronicle. Prior to that, he was a lifestyle editor and wine columnist for MSNBC, the U.S. columnist for Decanter Magazine, and the wine consultant for JetBlue Airways. His work has earned him three Rotor Awards, the most ever won by an American, including for his groundbreaking book, The New California Wine. He's also the author of The New Wine Rules, which has been published in multiple international editions. John has been a journalist for more than three decades, including work in digital journalism for outlets such as NBC News, Court TV, and News Corp. He joins us today to tell us all about his new comprehensive two-volume book, The New French Wine, Redefining the World's Greatest Wine Culture. Welcome to the podcast, John. Hey, Todd. It is a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you. So let's just start with the obvious question: Why does French wine need redefining?
3: Well, I don't know uh, if um, if that makes me an enophilic spoil sport uh, to suggest <laughs> it. But, um, to some, probably. Yeah. Right? Uh, so the reason I would say it needs redefining is uh, that French wine, as it exists today, is. Radically, radically different than it was even 20 years ago. It's, it's you know, same, same, but different. Like, it's, it's the same regions. It's the the Appalachians that people know it's the framework is not fundamentally different than it's been for a very long time, although not as long as people would imagine. But the ways in which these wines are made, the quality, to your point about agronomy, the farming, uh, the understanding of ripeness and climate change, uh, the, uh, the quality revolution that really has taken place in almost every region, uh, these, are, these are completely different than they were, let's say, at the turn of the millennium when uh, the wine world overall, and certainly the French wine world, was very different. The tastes that people had were very different. Uh, The approach to farming, the view of of what ripeness was, of what style was, all of these things are truly remarkably changed in a couple decades.
1: I want to pick up on that because actually I think you just made a great point that gets maybe lost in the shuffle of the pretense of French wine is there's plenty of French wine that's mediocre or bad or just like box wine here. Just a lot of it wasn't exported. And I think that's what you're talking about, is actually the overall quality of the average French wine has gone up quite a bit, or there's more... Good wine than there used to be,
3: or do do you disagree with that? Well, uh, you know, the the overall quality of wine everywhere has gone up dramatically uh, than it that versus what it was thirty years ago, and some of that is just uh, is kind of the the end of the life cycle of a proper uh, enological training and viticulture things like that. Um, in fact, what I would say is there's um, it's it's more that the bad French wine has increasingly gone away, which is to say. The wines that are not farmed particularly well, that are made for bulk wine, that are really made on the cheap, that don't represent the, the greatness of French terroir or French, French wine in general, there's ever less of that in part because it's just not economical for the French to make it anymore. It's a country with very high labor, labor standards. It's a country that leaving aside obviously its historical role in uh, in, in making great wine uh, you know it, it is wine is an important part of the culture but it is consumed less than it was 20 or 30 years ago. Uh, and if you really want, that you know, kind of cheap supermarket wine, and and the French, you know, or, or French farmers, some of them will will literally take to the streets over this. Spain can do it cheaper. Italy can do it cheaper. There's there's lots of places in the world that you can get uh, cheap wine, all of which, to be fair, is much better than it used to be. But to some extent, that that part of the French industry keeps falling out because. It just doesn't make economic sense. It's, there's, there's no real value to being a farmer who just turns his grapes into the co-op to make indistinguished, you know, indistinguishable cheap wine.
1: Because ultimately, it, there's not enough profit in it is what you're saying.
3: Yeah. I mean, you know, if you look somewhere, let's say at um, Beaujolais, just to take a, a good example, the bulk grape prices in Beaujolais are what they were 20 years ago. So maybe even less. So if you're thinking about, you know, just being a farmer who doesn't really care quality of the grapes, you're just going to sell them. And that, you know, that was to some extent a a view uh, after the Second World War in French agriculture uh, was one of of quantity. You you simply aren't going to survive because, you know. There's, there's very few things that uh, that have the same price that they did 20 years ago. So you're getting paid what you did two decades ago. Your farming costs have gone up. Your labor costs have gone up. It's hard to say that there's actually even a market for grapes like those anymore. And so it's just – it's not sustainable to your point.
1: Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. So let's go back. Cause this is a very, wait, wait, impressive... we got
3: really deep, really fast. So. <laughs>
1: yeah, I know. And I was like, for all those who were thought we were going to talk about wine, they're like, why are we talking about farming still? Um, but I, I think our mutual point is farming is a big part of making wine that, that, you know, I think for years in sort of the culture of, of elitism around wine was, it was not discussed even though it's always been a critical component. Um, I did want to ask you, so this is comprehensive, it's also beautiful. Um, it's more than, I think, it's a little hard to calculate, but I said it was more than 800 pages. Um, and that's your, I'm sure not all your work, but edited down to 800 pages. So how long did it take you to put this together? And and how did you select the vintners that are included?
3: So it took about eight years. Uh, this project started in 2014. Uh, and, uh, yes, it's shockingly, uh, it's, it's, I think 864 pages and that is maybe 75,000 words shorter than it started out, which I, I still can't get my head around. Uh, I don't, (laughs) I, I don't know where all the words came from. Um, but, uh, in terms of selecting, you know, that's, that's always the secret sauce. Uh, and, uh, you know, there, there's no, there's no simple answer to it, but I think, it was it was a cross section of certainly the, the the book in terms of producers was broken out by region so it was knowing that within each region I needed to have you know at least a critical mass of of vignerons who were uh, who represented the new and what 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 was happening and what is happening and uh you know I wanted to try to make sure that I was hitting even some of the more minor appellations that might not be that familiar to folks but you know I wanted to really demonstrate that the the this 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 range of beliefs in in change and in in revolution in some cases in terms of quality uh really is taking place um very, very broadly, and and you go to somewhere like saint pour which is a very small appellation in the uplands of the Loire as you start to climb into the mountains. Uh, not a place that, you know, anyone is clamoring to get wine from, but, you know, th- it's not it's not a ton of change, but there are people there who are moving to biodynamics and really thinking about about serious, uh, intentful winemaking. Um, and so, you know, it was looking at each region, deciding that I needed to to try to make you know some representative choices, and then looking at who was doing the most interesting work, the who, who were the greatest forces of change, or who were, uh, well, I should say, who were the greatest forces of change. With the asterisk being that doesn't necessarily mean just new wineries. Uh, if you look, say, at Burgundy, uh, and there's there's certain wineries in the in the producers volume that are marked as what, what I call benchmark wineries uh, or domains. And what they are is long established properties that have really done the work. They they could easily have just sat back and and followed or Done what they've always done, but they they really took the effort to try and show the the potential of what their terroir could offer, even even if they already had the fame. That they kept doing the work, and so take Domaine de la Romanée Conti, which is arguably the most famous Burgundy in the world, um, certainly the most expensive. And you know, most of the people who are buying this book. Um, including its author, uh, are probably really never going to drink those wines more than, you know, once in, you know, once in a lifetime, twice in a lifetime. But the work that they have done in terms of introducing biodynamics to the region, in terms of creating uh, genetic diversity in vine selections, uh, in terms of really spreading knowledge and and promoting uh, the ambient culture of Burgundy as a place that doesn't just believe in making fancy wine, but believes in making wines uh, at every quality tier, at every price range, or within their spectrum, within every price range. But, you know, they could have easily just gone and been super fancy, and they they didn't. They decided to really remain humble uh, and to focus on the work. And so, um, so even though there's a, quite a lot of new names in the book, which, of course, was the point, there are plenty of familiar names because – there are, sometimes it's the new generations and the kids come in and they, they really want to kind of get into the game. Sometimes it's, you know, it's just a family that was always more progressive, uh, or a domain that was always more progressive. Uh, it's this, this, this notion of change as an inclusive force. And so, uh, I'm not going to say it's a grab bag of producers cause it was, you know, eight years of, you know, choosing people in or out or what have you, but, uh, we ended up with a little over 830 producers. And and really, I'd say every single one of those, uh, I had to justify to myself why they should be there.
1: Well, and, and that's what I was going to ask you, because in some ways, this book is encyclopedic, but it's by no means exhaustive because there are that many vintners in the world and in France. But when you were writing it, or how do you pitch? Like, who should buy this book? Is who is it for? Is it is it for people who already know their Saint-Emilions from Ben Yules, or how how do you sort of see positioning? Or it kind of works on different levels for different readers.
3: Uh, well, clearly, as an author, I would have to say it's for absolutely everyone and everyone should <laughs> have a copy two, two or three if they can. Um, <laughs> but it, it,
1: I would say it's very giftable. Yeah. It's both beautiful. And certainly for the wine lover that, you know, it
3: makes a perfect gift. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We we, we thought a little about how how to make it a good gift book. Uh, no, I, I think it it really and truly works at, at different levels and and from the beginning. We did conceive it that way and we did structure it that way, uh, which is to say, you know, look, if if you're, you know, deep on French wine, if you if you know it all or, you know, presume presume to know it all. None of us know it all. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's. Um, there, there's lots of very geeky, specific detail. There's lots of discussion of winemaking and viticulture. Uh, you know, hopefully not too, too geeky. I I try to, you know, at least uh, the science writer in me from years past tries to dial it back just a little bit. Uh, but, you know, there's, there's, I'm sure there will be people who would like if it went even deeper, but uh, you know, at some point when you're being published by a commercial and not an academic press, you have to <laughs> you have to you know you have to find a balance. But um, but at the same time, you know, I and really it was the same with the new California wine. I, I I've always found it very very important to make sure that even if your book is going to serve as a reference, that it have a narrative structure, and so you know, every, every region has its own story, um, somewhat linear. Uh, I don't know that I'm ever a linear writer, but, you know, but I, I, it does, it hopefully does tell a tale and tells the tale of why things are changing and how they're changing, introduces you to the vigneron who are behind it and their ideas and their philosophy. And, you know, and this was, this was actually a really valuable learning from writing the, the first book was that, especially when you get to wine, there has to be an aspect of, of travel, of voyage, that, uh, that you are moving through a wine region, you're meeting people, you're discovering what's there, uh, which is to say, you know, there's plenty of philosophical stuff in the book. There's some interstitial chapters that go deep on farming or climate or natural wine. But uh, but a lot of the book is really meant to be uh, a journey through France. I mean, my, my journey through France and discovering all of the things that are changing and, and all of the people who are behind it.
1: Well, I think that really comes through. I mean, I I've spent quite a lot of time in France without actually technically ever living there over, uh, several decades of my life. Um, and, uh, I thought, you know, I read in particular the regions that I know well and it all rang true, but I wasn't familiar with any of the producers that you highlighted, so I think I think you you accomplished both your your goals very well. I wanted to ask you, I think there's a perception and you you mentioned this at, at the beginning that there's maybe more of a deep rooted and fixed, like ancient history of French wine regions, rather than it actually being a little bit more contemporary than maybe people realize. And so I was curious, how fixed are these regions and, and do they change at all?
3: So it's, it's interesting because the French of, of course love the notion that their wine regions have existed since time immemorial <laughs> they they are as they have always been i mean look this is this is what's behind the the appellation controle the the, the appellation system that uh that these are uh the, literally the 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 defining uh criteria when they were trying to create this was um uh local longstanding and constant customs and so the the notion that say a centimillion would be a centimillion implies that the one, the wine that you get in a Cenemillon bottle is is it is, is as it has always been, and it is made to certain standards, and it represents a certain place and a certain tradition, which is a lovely notion. It's also largely a load of crap, uh, in the sense <laughs> that you know, I mean, yes, there's there's. There is a tradition, and, and when you look at the the real reason the Appalachians were created, they were created to, to prevent fraud uh, and to ensure uh, quality, but, you know, the, the – Yes. If you believe in the terroir, Saint-Emilion is still largely what Saint-Emilion was. Uh, That's an interesting case because they created their own classification in 1955, which has become truly one of the biggest messes in French wine. Because what happens when you have ambitious and wealthy people who all want to be uh, at the top of the heap? Um, You know somebody is going to be unhappy with how that settles out. And when you redo it every 10 years and people have lawyers, it's amazing what happens. Um, but...
1: I, I think, are you referring to what is the, the geographic map of what is in the Saint-Emilion Appalachian? Not not even that,
3: but just the, the you know, they, they have Grand Cru and they have, you know, Class A, uh, A and B, Class A and B. And so, you know, you want to be not just Grand Cru, but you want to be... Uh, you want to be class B or class A and maybe you're class A and you get demoted to B or you B and you want to be A. And so, uh, I mean, there's every single time now since really since the 80s that a new one is done. Uh, somebody sues somebody. Honestly, most of the major estates in sentiment you know, pulled out of the 2022 uh, two classification because they felt that the criteria were no longer relevant. They were being judged for like their social media feed and they just were like this is this has- <laughs>
1: I also think what, what's what's <laughs> funny about France is they love a system right? and they also love gaming a system. Precisely. So like both forces are like at their, like I always say, like if you create a system, human beings are engineered to figure out how to work around it. But the French have this duality, right, of loving bureaucracy and bureaucratic systems and being expert at working them.
3: Yes. And this, this is quintessentially Cartesian of them. We have all our rules <laughs> and all our rules are here to break. Uh... <laughs> And so, so to, to just to stick with an example, I mean, you could pick lots of appellations. But so if you look at Saint-Emilion, I mean, now people are like, okay, well, it's from this particular area. Area has somewhat changed um, what used to be called the Sabre de Saint-Emilion, the, the Sands of Saint-Emilion, is now part of the main appellation. Uh, the quote-unquote Grand Cru of Saint-Emilion, which was supposed to be uh, the the top quality, is essentially accounts for the majority of the appellation. So it's not really governing... Uh, you know, truly, truly top quality to your point about gaming the system and everyone wants <laughs> to be in it. Um, but but more specifically, you know, now if you look at a centennial wine, they are predominantly Merlot. There's maybe a little Cabernet Franc. But if you go back to the certainly pre-war, but even the years after the war, the predominant grape in the area was Cabernet Sauvignon and then Cabernet Franc. And it was only after the deep frosts of uh, the 1950s when it was replanted to Merlot. So if you want to talk about constancy, this is literally going from one major grape of Bordeaux to the other major grape of Bordeaux, same same appellation, uh, same terroir theoretically, but they just decided to plant something that had a better ripening curve and ripened earlier and was more productive. Uh, ironically, the sands, uh, they kept more Cabernet on, and now what they're discovering is that climate change is likely gonna force them to go back to Cabernet uh, because Merlot gets too ripe too early. and so. Again, to this this notion of of you know things never change. Well, things are constantly, constantly changing, and this is why uh, Emile Peynaud, who is the great enologist of Bordeaux, his classic line is "tradition is an experiment that worked," and that's so intrinsic to how French wine exists. Like you know, everything is as it has always been, except we only invented it five years ago.
1: Well yeah I mean I think that back to our our farming basis for this is growing things is related to nature and nature has lots of cycles and variations so something is fixed until it just doesn't bloody work anymore and then you have to change it whether that's because of of um, you know climate or disease or 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 something else
3: Yeah and and you know there's um there is a There has been a lot of change in farming that's been forced, which is to say, uh, you know, historically French viticulture has been predicated on the notion that you will never get your grapes ripe enough, that you're in Northern Europe, things will be too cold, the the plants aren't hardy enough, you have hail, whatever it is, like you're never going to get fully ripe grapes. And maybe once in a, a, you know, once in a decade you do. And then it's, of course, the vintage of the century, as Bordeaux likes to say. Uh, But on balance, you're always working with deficiency. And I mean, hundreds and hundreds of years, this has been the supposition. And then really starting in maybe the early to mid 2000s, Vigneron started to realize that this was no longer an issue, and if anything, the opposite was an issue. The, the harvest had all moved up, often by a month or more. Uh, bud break and, and other key uh, moments in the growing season had also moved up, which in somewhere like, say, Burgundy was uh, putting the grapes at risk of a killing frost every single year. Uh, and so just the, the 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 cycle of farming that had been in existence for really again since certainly the 16th century if not well before uh, was was being radically disrupted uh, and you know there's there's places where I think Vigneron were much smarter about it if you if you look in the Roussillon uh, which is really the southernmost part of, of metropolitan France of mainland France. Uh, the, the farmers there have for a good couple decades been planting on north facing slopes, thinking about windbreaks, thinking about how to slow down ripening because you're almost in Catalonia. There's a lot of sun there. But now their thoughts and their ideas are suddenly having to make their way north to places like Burgundy and, and even Champagne, where suddenly, you know, this this belief that you were at the edge of Viable farming for wine is just no longer true. So there's again there there is this constant change, uh, but also in a more willful and, and thoughtful way. Uh, France historically during the 20th century was was one of the countries in the world most reliant on pesticides, and and you look at the numbers, and it's really astonishing the extent to which they, uh, you know, they they opted into a system that. Um, that used enormous, enormous quantities of pesticides, herbicides, mildicides, et cetera. Uh, And there has been a huge reckoning in French agriculture broadly and French viticulture specifically that this was truly the wrong way to go. Uh, that this was profoundly damaging and and there's economic reasons why this was the case but uh, but there's now i think a, a widespread understanding far more than in the u.s that organics is essential even if it's you know you're, you're tweaking exactly how you do it uh, but certainly making something like wine that uh, there's this understanding that that this is the future uh, sustainability in the, the the vague sense but but really going beyond that to, to specific farming products calls. Uh, And so you see even uh, Bordeaux, which was probably the worst, if not among the worst offenders, you you see the the percentage of vineyard land that is organic is growing by like double digits every year. And so some of it is the world is changing, you know, the climate is changing and the French are not immune to that. And even in all their uh, their timeless traditions they have to change but i think there's also this sense that uh that you know for 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 scientific reasons for health reasons uh that the the methods of farming have to get much better and and that farmers have to to learn to make much smarter choices
1: okay i want to pick up on that after the break cuz i think I, I, obviously within food and wine that's that's a really hot topics. So we'll, we'll come back with more from French wine expert, John Bonet. Stay with us.
2: This episode is brought to you by Cheese State University. Cheese State University was created for dedicated cheese professionals seeking to deepen their knowledge, sharpen their skills and build connections.
4: It feels like a gift to be able to give this gift to people because I know that from my own experiences, I know how valuable, consolidated, incredible training resources are.
2: They offer an in-depth education on all things cheese, as well as an active network for peer support and career development.
4: You can pop over to the Quad, which is our social networking and engagement app. Um, and so that's a really fun and dynamic aspect of Cheese State University.
2: Cheese State's three part course is designed for seasoned pros and entry level mongers alike and covers all the skills one needs to perform on the cheese counter.
4: The structure of Cheese State University is all based on the Cheese State University Field Guide. Um, and that is a three volume resource, it's all digital online.
2: At the end of the course, Students will be ready to ace the field guide assessment and earn their Cheese State Scholar Certificate.
4: Another resource is a video series where we tackle sort of like these thornier questions that you can get on the cheese counter. Like, what is rennet, And like, why is this cheese so expensive? And can pregnant people even eat cheese?
2: At Cheese State, you're among experts. You're among scholars. You're among cheese lovers. And most importantly, you are a monger. Join them in the Ivy League of Cheese Education
1: at CheesestateUniversity.com. Welcome back. We're talking to journalist John Bonnet about his latest book, The New French Wine, Redefining the World's Greatest Wine Culture. So when we went to break, we were talking about um, organic farming and and how that's changing a lot in, in France and certainly within even just wine drinking communities. Natural wine, organic wine, or sometimes called biodynamic wine, or the French word is bio. Um, so you were talking about how this is this is really transforming the French wine industry, and I was just curious: is it, how widespread is it still, or is it still kind of a niche movement, or it depends which of those many classifications, which sort of mean the same thing, but don't. You're talking about?
3: Yeah, I was going to say the, the the main question there is which of the classifications because uh, bio or organic uh, and biodynamic or biodynamic uh, mean two different things but similar things and natural means something else entirely. Um, in terms of in terms of organics, uh, biodynamics is a subset, but you have to be organic to be biodynamic. So let's talk organic. Uh, It is relatively widespread. I would have to look at the exact numbers, but if I'm remembering correctly, somewhere around 20% plus of French vineyards are now farmed organically. Uh, So that's really extraordinarily high for anywhere in the world. I think in the US, it's maybe 2%, 4%. uh, And you see that number growing rapidly, even for the production of supermarket wine. And some of that is in in the French supermarkets much as you you buy organic milk or you you buy organic uh, meat uh, the expectations even if you're just buying a four euro bottle that you still are looking for organics it's just it's part of the culture the French very strongly believe in in buying uh, bio what for them is bio uh, across the range of products uh, so even if you look at somewhere like the Gard, which is uh which is where um uh like Arles is, um, near near the southern Rhone and and the Mediterranean. Uh the Guard has something I think like 30% plus um maybe up to 40% now uh of its vineyards are farmed organically. And these are for for the most part not vineyards making fancy wine. This is a lot of table wine. Uh, so, uh, in in a broad sense, organics are are very clearly the future for for French vineyards, and I think uh, you see, there you know on, on a widespread basis, uh, whether it's super fancy wines, whether it's you know just your like I said your four euro bottle in the supermarket, uh, there there is a commitment to that. Natural is always a little different. Uh, It presumes that, yes, it is organic, biodynamic, what have you, but it's also a lot about process uh, and what is or is not added to the wine, uh, especially uh, commercial yeasts and sulfur dioxide, which is a preservative. Uh, And, you know, natural is uh, there for sure are no numbers around it uh, and the french are fanatical about maintaining uh maintaining statistics but i have yet to see real statistics around natural cuz nobody knows how to define it like every single person has a different definition uh but it's you know it's i think on one hand, you would say it is a fringe, but uh, this is this is always my question when when someone wants to talk about the mainstream, and I ask them to define mainstream. Uh, you know, if you look at the the serious uh, wine merchants, restaurants, connoisseurs in France, the people who are really deeply involved with. Uh, the modern wine market, which is to say the the, the the top of the gastronomic chain, natural wine is a profound, profound force. It is uh, like in the US and like in, say, Scandinavia, but even more so in France. It is really a guiding force at that top level. Meaning there's consumer demand
1: or people who are serious about or take their wine drinking seriously are more and more asking for it, exploring it? Is that where it's driven from? Or is it driven from within the industry in a just inherent interest in change?
3: Both, although I would say it's more wine consumers, and especially wine consumers under 40. And one of the things to to really remember when you think about France and its wine culture is it is, well, in their minds, it's a crisis. I don't know if we would consider it a crisis, but there are well, the fe- French
1: like the word crisis, yes, they have a, cr- a crise de everything, yeah. a least, <laughs> <crise>,
3: yeah, cr- <laughs> crise de a crise de Monday, yeah. <laughs> um, but, um, but, uh, you know, there are fewer and fewer young French who are drinking wine, it's just mm. again, you know it's not something that's seen as an everyday necessity as it once was. And there's, you know, Coca, you could drink, you know, you could drink Coke, you could drink kombucha, you could drink all sorts of things. And it's just, it's not quite, it's, it's not as intrinsic to the culture as it was. And so what you do see is the, the modern again, the modern culinary movement, what what's often called the the, the neo bistro, the neo bistro uh, or bistronomy, the the younger chefs and the restaurants they run, the younger diners, uh, the you know certainly in in urban areas, uh, Paris, but but in most major cities, they have all transformed their style of cooking. And with that has come a really deep commitment to largely natural wine, certainly to what I would call progressive winemaking in France. And so uh, there's, you know, there's probably less overall wine drinking in general, but the people who are really serious about it, they are actually driving it forward. And there's some, there's some interest in the industry, but I think this, you know, when you when you look at the history of natural wine, it was largely driven by, uh, partially the end consumers and partially the restaurants that really supported it in in East Paris in the early eighties. And so I think what you see today is just a magnification of of something that started a generation or so ago, where uh, there's a desire to to sh- to shuffle off the uh the very commercial very industrial winemaking that was uh that had its rise in the 20th century
1: yeah no i think that's interesting i think you're 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 pointing out that within french culture there there there's a lot more there's the american view of what france is like or was like and what's depicted in the media or even um, contemporary television, but that France is going through these really strong transformations in, in how people live. People are and always have been very health conscious or health. It's not the way we use the word health conscious, concerned about their health, and that that is moved toward movements like bio, which, which, which is more about food, actually, and agriculture than it is necessarily about wine. But by extension, That is also changing. But it's also an urban-rural thing. At the same time, the – what are called roulet routier, which are like truck stops but not exactly, were used to be able to get great food, now often have terrible food or unhealthy food. And you've got the – I mean, just like in America, these kind of two dichotomies going on at the same time.
3: You do, although – to some extent, the wine culture in, in rural France, or what they call uh, France Peripherie, Peripheral France, um, has has largely gone away. Uh, it's, you know, I mean, people are still drinking some wine there, but it's just, um, these are not affluent areas. It, they've largely emptied out, and uh, they are, um, you know, they that's just not where wine drinking takes place. And so um, like almost everything in France that has a dichotomy between uh, the, you know, the, the urban, you know, uh, affluent uh, French person uh, and the rural or the, you know, the peripheral France, uh, you know, the wine culture for better or worse right now is largely in France being driven by an urban market. Uh, because you, you go, you go, you go out into the countryside and like, you know, the kids as it were, but like, but younger, younger, the younger French, like they're, they're not sitting in a, in a cafe drinking wine. Like if anything, they're drinking, uh, Desperados, uh, which is sort of a flavored beer or they're drinking soda or whatever. They're like, you know, the, the wine is something their parents drank and so to the extent that the wine culture in france is pushing forward it is very much again among this kind of young urbane uh core of of french consumer
1: oh that that is really interesting yeah because most of most time i've spent time in in very core wine drinking area or wine growing and wine producing areas. And presumably, I think what you're saying is that's slightly distortive. If you're in a place where wine is a big part of the local economy, there may be more wine drinking still than maybe if you go broader into France in general.
3: Yeah, although even in a lot of wine wine producing areas, you don't see a deep wine culture. I mean, you know, if you go to the Rhone and you go to the restaurants that you would expect an American showing up in the Rhone to go to, you will, of course, find good Cote Roti, good Cornas, Crozer Mitage, etc. Uh, but, you know, you can, you can also go to a local bar in Tan and everyone is just going to be drinking beer or, you know, maybe they're drinking Ricard, although not as much as they used to. But it's just, it's not, it's not sort of you, you wander into a bistro and, you know, everyone is sitting with their beret drinking their coup de rouge. Like it's, it's just, it's evolved. And, my, my perennial memory of this was I was in Villiers-Morgon, which is uh, what, where the crew of Morgon comes from in Beaujolais. So this is the heart of Beaujolais. This is where the best Beaujolais in theory is really from. And I go to the local wine bar I'll put that in air quotes, wine bar, and you can you can literally order something like a hundred Beaujolais by the glass, and it's basically empty. And it's me who's wandered into my absolute wonderland. I can try like every great Beaujolais that I've ever wanted. Uh, it's all there, and you know, um, and like two two kids who are maybe nineteen or twenty drinking their desperados, or actually they were drinking beer flavored with uh, syrup because it was like bright green and that's it. And it's like the three of us sitting in this bar in the heart of Beaujolais where everyone's like, oh, it's, you know, it's a constant festival and they're drinking their gamay and it's, you know, it's a it's an endless party. And I'm like, <laughs> to be clear, there is one person here drinking Beaujolais. It's the American schmuck who showed up and the only other people here are drinking flavored beer. And that's that's basically the tenor of a lot of rural France. It's just, you know, it's it's not that much different to your point about the, you know, the Woutier and, and, and local country cooking, where if people are even bothering now, it's all from the, the Metro, which is like the, the French equivalent of Cisco. And it's all sort of microwaved and, you know, just fast food basically. And so uh, it's just, you know, this, this is not to, to put a dent in the, the glory of, of French, uh, uh, gastronomy or wine or anything else, but it's just, uh, you know, look, it's it's a, it's a country in twenty first century Europe, uh, and uh, it is better now than it had been a few years ago in terms of its economy. But its economy still has some deep issues, and you know, sitting around the countryside drinking wine is really far down on uh, on the list of of what most uh, rural French are are interested in. Yeah, no, I'm struck by what you're
1: describing describes America too. There's a subset of people who are really interested in food and where it comes from and eating at the most interesting places and their chefs moving in these exact directions that you describe. But then there's a whole other part of the population that's also just evolved and interested in other things and not spending time on that. I mean, clearly, as much as those of us in the food world obsess about certain things, there's enough frozen food in the grocery store that someone's eating. That there's plenty of people who are not making everything from scratch.
3: Yeah, exactly. And and um, you know, one of the things that I had to adjust to when I was on on the road reporting, uh, reporting the book was, you know, I, I started. Well, I'll I'll stay in some lovely little French hotels, and I'll go and find. Little cute little restaurant in whatever town, and uh, you know, and sort of get into the you know the vibe of, of, uh, of French cooking, and I did that for like a few months, and it was finally in Arbois, which is in the Jura. That uh, it was actually one of the best restaurants in, in Arbois, and after the third night that I was there all three nights being served, um, uh, coco chicken, chicken, uh, in a, uh, chicken with morels in a in a, uh, you know, cream sauce with van which is a specialty wine of the Jura, uh, in June when it's like 90 degrees out. And I was like, I, you know, I basically I was like, can someone find me a salad? anyone. And, and so after that, I started booking Airbnbs and I would, I had got into a very specific routine. I would go to Leclerc, which is one of the big local supermarkets. And I had my list of like, get Dijon mustard, cornichon, salt, pepper, olive oil, you know, uh, usually, um, you know, some shallots, things like that. Go to the local farmer's market, pick up, fresh produce, pick up some, some poultry, some cheese, whatever it is. Uh, When I was near the ocean, get some seafood and I would just get into a habit of, you know, probably not the world's most interesting cooking, but just making kind of straightforward, you know, straightforward country food um, as much as you want to do for, one person who's, uh, you know, staying by themselves in a, in a rental property. But, uh, but, uh, it just became this thing where I was like, the only way that I'm going to make it through the years it's going to take to do this thing is if I stop with believing I'm going to, you know believing i'm going to find these great local restaurants everywhere stop eating all the microwave whatever and just do what to your point france does well which is which is grow remarkable raw product uh, at astonishingly affordable prices people often forget the extent to which uh, agriculture and thus food prices are subsidized in france and just you know do do what the french do which is go to the market and cook stuff
1: yeah, no, and I think that's a great point, because that actually is the way most French people eat all the, all the time, and that, um, I don't know statistically, but I'm pretty sure that the amount of disposable income the French have, the average French family compared to American, is not as high, so eating out or splurging on expensive wine or good meals is, is more rare than it is day to day.
3: The median French income is somewhere around 21,000 euros a year. So if anyone wants to like do the math on that and you know, remember like they're paying very high taxes, but they also pay for no health care, you know, health care you know, is taken care of, lots of things are taken care of but uh, but yeah, it's you know it is it is not a place with particularly high salaries um, labor there is very stable in that you you know you likely to keep a job, but uh, but there's not tons of advancement and so yeah, you, uh, you know, Honestly, it's astonishing the French dine out as much as they do, which is, I think, a testament to how important that is in the French culture, uh, given that, you know, we show up in Paris and we think everything is so affordable and, and uh, it's so great and you can dine out all the time. But uh, but the, the typical French person is is doing that on a much smaller salary. Yeah. All
1: right. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we'll hear John's Julia moment. Tickets are on sale for the 2023 Taste of Santa Barbara, May 15th to 21st. Check out the full schedule and get your tickets now on sbce.events. The lineup features some of Santa Barbara County's top culinary talent. Highlights include a special screening of classic Julia episodes and a conversation with chefs Susan Feniger, Antonio Lafazo, and Nancy Silverton a cherry bomb meetup focused on women winemakers at the Inn at Maddie's Tavern, and the Taste of Santa Barbara Wines at El Presidio Returns. There will be cooking classes, farm tours, wine tours, and special menus throughout the county. Follow at SB Culinary Experience on Instagram for breaking news and updates. Proceeds from the Taste of Santa Barbara benefit the local community. We hope to see you there. Let us know what you think of today's show. Send us an email or a voice memo to contact JuliaChildFoundation.org. We'll be right back.
3: When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have, but you can always pick it up and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see
1: From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she might have inspired them in their career. John, what's your Julia moment?
3: So I I don't know that I have a really great single defining moment. Uh, what I will say is this. Uh, so my father had an interesting career. He he trained uh, both in business. He was a businessman uh, and a corporate executive, uh, but he also trained as a chef. And uh, so uh, growing up was interesting because there was a lot of very osmotic um, learning in our house where you just sort of hang out in the kitchen and watch him do stuff. Uh, And I will say that his prime cookbook was mastering the art of French cooking. I think he actually had a first edition of it. And so Julia was sort of there always lurking whenever I was watching my father do whatever he was doing, roast chicken, uh, do a gratin, et cetera. Uh, I know I still have that book and uh, it's uh, to say it's tattered is being kind. Uh, but uh, I will say that, you know, uh, her work uh, and clearly her, her ethos and, uh, and that moment I'd say in the sixties into the early seventies, when she was really guiding, Americans to understand what what true French cooking was. Uh, I just happened to kind of, you know, pick it up by hanging around.
1: I love that. I I think that's great. That's a, a we we love those very personal family Julia moments, and I, I I know that Julia would have too. Thank you for sharing that.
3: Of course. So I like you know it's it's like I wish I had one big recipe, but uh, this is kind of the same with my wine career. It's just you know you hang you hanging around with you know talented people long enough, eventually you pick something up. <laughs> well, thank you very much for joining us today,
1: Todd. Truly a pleasure, and thanks everyone for listening. For more from John, he's at jbonne, J-B-O-N-N-E, on Twitter and Instagram. The book is The New French Wine, Redefining the World's Greatest Wine Culture, by John Bonnet, with photographs by Susanna Ireland. It's out now from 10 Speed Press. Ask or search for it at your favorite bookseller. Video clips from The French Chef continue to arrive weekly on at Julia Child on Facebook. And please follow at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. I'm at T tshulkin on Instagram. You can find Julia Child channels streaming The French Chef on Pluto TV, Plex, and Freevee, as well as on the PBS Living and PBS Documentary channels on Amazon. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at GBH. Thanks to my co-producer at the foundation, Lauren Solkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Armin Spengen. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundations world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Inside Julia's Kitchen is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you.